You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, please. Hebrews 10, and we're going to read together verses 4 through 10. Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This middle section of the book of Hebrews offers a series of comparisons between the work of Christ and all of the forms and features of the Old Covenant. We have seen back in chapter 7 that Jesus is a superior priest to Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Then we saw in chapter 8 that he has initiated a superior covenant, superior to the Old Covenant. And now in chapter 9 and 10, we're seeing that Jesus has offered a superior sacrifice, a sacrifice superior to the animal sacrifices. And this superiority of Christ is important for us to understand so that we might know and rest in his sufficiency so that we may that we may jettison all false views of Christ and his sacrifice that cause us to look to anything and anywhere else other than to Jesus Christ for our hope for our confidence for our joy for our delight in our salvation for our assurance of salvation and so the author all the way through this with every comparison has been showing that Jesus is superior to all of the forms the features, the functions, and the persons of the Old Covenant. And every time he does this, when he tells us that something old has been replaced with something new, on every occasion, with the priesthood, with the covenant, and with the sacrifices, the author has made the point that the bringing in of the new has replaced and made obsolete the old. So every time he says that this new thing has come which God has promised, That which it replaced is then made obsolete. It's no longer operative. It's not working anymore. It's not functioning anymore. And we saw this with the priesthood. When Jesus, who is our high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, him having come and done his priestly work, what happened to the Aaronic priesthood? It was no more. It vanished. I mean, it continued to function for a few years after that, just like a a car coasting down when the engine has been suddenly pulled out of it, the wheels continued to turn and it continued to coast until eventually it was completely done away with. Today there is no function for the Aaronic priesthood. It's, it's, it's nothing. With the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant having been replaced by the New, what, what, what does the author say regarding the Old Covenant? It's obsolete. Right? It was useless. It was weak. It was unable to do certain things. And so now the New has come and the Old One has become obsolete. The sacrifice of Christ renders all the Old Testament sacrifices obsolete. 
No more animal sacrifices, no more drink offerings, no more uh, Yom Kippur's, no more Passover events. All of those things have been replaced and, and rendered completely obsolete by the arrival of the death of Christ, by the, by the sacrifice of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So the new has replaced and completely superseded the old. And every time the author tries to make this point that the old has replaced the new, he goes back to Scripture. Remember, he did it with the priesthood. In order to show that the Old Testament priesthood was eventually to be no more and that it would be superseded by a new priesthood, he took us to Psalm 110, where we read, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he gave us an explanation of Psalm 110 to show us that this expectation that the old priesthood would go away and that a new priesthood would come, it's completely in keeping with everything the Old Testament taught concerning the Aaronic priesthood. Likewise with the Old Covenant. In order to show us that the old has re- the old has been replaced by the new, he took us to Jeremiah 31, where the Lord promises, this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and with the descendants of Judah. And then he explains to us the, the details of the new covenant there to show us from Scripture, from the Old Testament, that there would be a new covenant and the old would go away. Well, now he's doing the same thing with the sacrifices. He's told us that the sacrifice of Christ is superior to the animal sacrifices, but now the author needs to make the case that the Old Testament scriptures actually anticipated that those animal sacrifices would eventually come to an end. And to do that, he quotes Psalm 40, which is what we read in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, and 9. Those verses there where he is quoting and then explaining the, the passage from Psalm 40, he's trying to make the case that even in the Old Testament, they anticipated that those sacrifices would eventually come to an end. So the coming of Christ has put an end to those sacrifices. His work is superior, and that's what the author is intending to show. Christ had to come in order to provide the good things that were promised to us because those old forms and functions, they were only shadows and could not actually provide anything. Second, they had to be repeated, which was evidence of their uselessness and their inability to accomplish that task. And now third, the author is going to show us in verse 4, and all of this brings us up to verse 4, that they were merely animal sacrifices. So now we come to verse 4 and following. They were merely animal sacrifices. So he says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now that word impossible, it translates a word that means something is incapable of something, it's unable, it is powerless, it is without strength. It describes something that has no ability or strength or capacity or power to achieve something else. It can't happen because the capacity to do it is completely absent. So the word is used in Acts chapter 14, for instance, to describe a lame man who, it says, has no power or no strength in his feet. It's the same word, no power and no strength. Acts 14.8, at Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet. It's the same word translated impossible here. His legs were impossible. To do what? They had no strength to carry him anywhere. The same can be said of the Old Testament sacrifices. Those animals, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. See, the problem with the, the old covenant sacrifices of the animals was not that they just couldn't find the right animal. No Jew ever thought to himself, eventually we'll find the right lamb. Eventually we'll find the right bull, the right goat, the right red heifer. The problem was never with the quality of the animals. The problem was with the fact that they were animals. And the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. It, it lacks the strength, the capacity to do so. It's also the same words that's used in Hebrews 6, verse 18, when it says it is impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to lie. He lacks the power, the ability, the capacity to lie. It's not that God can lie and He just doesn't. 
is that there is nothing in God that gives him the capacity or the ability to, to say falsehood, to speak falsehood. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible, no strength to please God. Without faith it's impossible to please God. The one who lacks faith in Jesus Christ lacks also the ability to be pleasing in God's sight in any way. No matter what outward forms and functions he might adopt, no matter what he might say or do, no matter what practice he might make his own, he lacks the ability, he lacks the power to be pleasing to God in any way. Now this is something that we should expect from the context. When he says in verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, we could look back to verse 1 and say, that's because the bulls and goats were only shadows of the good things to come and not the things themselves. Those those sacrifices of the Old Covenant only portrayed or pictured what was to come, and therefore they lacked the ability to do anything. You can step out onto a job site with a, a, on a construction job site and pick up a hammer and stand in the full sun, and you can see your shadow there in front of you. How many nails can your shadow nail in? It's got the shadow of the hammer, right? And the shadow of you and the shadow of your muscles, but can the shadow actually do anything? The shadow can't accomplish anything. It's the same thing with the animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices, it is impossible. They lack the capacity, the strength, or the ability. And again, the problem was not that they couldn't find the right animal. The problem was not that they didn't offer enough sacrifices. The problem was not that they just didn't do it in the right way. The problem was always that the blood of bulls and goats had no strength, no capacity, no ability to take away sin. And this is what makes the sacrifice of Jesus Christ so utterly unique. And it makes, it's what makes his sacrifice so unique than all of the Old Testament sacrifices. In that he offered himself. He didn't offer an animal. Now why is it that animal sacrifices had no ability to take away sins? Well, number one, animals are not moral creatures. And we have create, we have committed moral crimes. Can you get that distinction in your head? Animals are not moral creatures. They are amoral. Not immoral. Amoral. They have no moral capacity. They have no moral conscience. They have no moral ability to understand what is right and what is wrong. And therefore, when we see a cheetah chase down a zebra and tear it apart and eat it out in the Serengeti, we don't say, that cheetah should be tried for crimes against zebra kind. We never say that. Why do we not hold animals to moral standards? Because they're not moral creatures. We are moral creatures. Well, an amoral, not immoral, an amoral creature, a creature without any moral capacity, cannot pay the penalty for the moral crimes of a moral being. Further, animals are irrational. They don't understand what they're doing. You could bring an animal to the, to the temple to have it sacrificed and offered uh, on behalf of your sin. That animal doesn't understand it. It wanders up there. It might look around at all the blood and think, hey, is that Billy over there on the table being disemboweled? He has no idea what's going on. He's not there willingly. He's not there by his own volition. He's not consciously aware that he's about to give his life in, in your stead. He has no capacity to understand that. He's an ir- it's an irrational uh, being. And it's different in nature than us. And so animals cannot pay the price for human sin. Instead, what we needed was one who was of the same nature as us, but unfallen, so that he could be perfect and innocent and holy and blameless. One who could obey all of God's law from the first to the last comprehensively and do all the Father's will so that he has no moral blemish in himself. Who then would willingly say, because sacrifices cannot do this, because these animals can never take away the sin of my people, I myself will do it. That's what he needed to say. And then he needed to step up and willingly, by his own volition, not as a victim, but as a volunteer, step up to bear and carry away all the sin of his people by offering himself in our stead and shedding that blood 
a rational, moral, human person who shares our nature and has the ability to bear our punishment. That's what we needed. And that's what makes the sacrifice of Jesus so singularly unique. That's what makes it sufficient. So what was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, namely, Christ has done. Chapter 9, verse 26. For this reason he was manifested. To what? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The author here in chapter 10 is just describing that. But he has a point to prove now. And his point to prove is that you ought not necessarily just believe him because he is saying this. But in fact, the Old Testament scriptures themselves anticipated this. The Old Testament scriptures actually expected that there would come a time when those animal sacrifices would be no more and another sacrifice would be done that would replace them. And to make that point, he turns back, he quotes back of Psalm 40, which we read at the beginning of our service. So you know how this, you know how you do this. I see some of you already getting ready. Okay, now we're going back to Psalm 40. You're absolutely right. Turn back in your Bibles to Psalm 40. Because before we jump into the quotation here in Hebrews and how the author here in Hebrews uses this psalm, we want to make sure that we're understanding what the meaning of this psalm is. So we're going to look at the whole psalm, particularly focusing in on the portion that the author of Hebrews quotes. And then next week, we'll come back to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll take what we learned today, and we'll kind of go dive into Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll wrestle through some of the issues that are there. Now, I want you to know that there is a lot going on in Psalm 40. And when I say that there's a lot going on in Psalm 40, I, I, I struggle today with trying to organize all of my thoughts and, and deal with all of the issues that are here. This was my biggest struggle this last week, was trying to find a way to sort of get my head and my arms around everything that is here and how Psalm 40 is used in Hebrews chapter 10 and what Psalm 40 means. That's the biggest struggle. So this is going to take a little bit to, for us to unpack. And when I say a little bit, I don't mean a little bit more of this sermon, but I like like a little bit more of this month to unpack as we work through this over the course of the next couple of weeks. There's a lot going on here because here's what we have. We have Psalm 40, which David wrote in his circumstances. So in David's mind, he was describing what he was dealing with. And he speaks, as it were, as the author of the psalm. But then we fast forward 1,500 years. No, a 1,000 years, sorry. We fast forward a 1,000 years to the time of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews, looking back on Psalm 40 says, yes, this was written by David, but it is also the Messiah speaking. So before he, that is Christ, comes into the world, he says, and he takes the the words of Psalm 40 and puts them on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state as he is about ready to enter into this creation. So there's a lot happening. So we actually have multiple meanings and layers in Psalm 40. We have David's intended meaning and what that psalm says of what David was going through, what he meant. Then we have the messianic implications, which is like a a whole other layer over top of that psalm and how the author of Hebrews uses that. And then we have this radically different citation between what we find in Hebrews 10 and what we find back in Psalm 40. And it is in that word, um, well, are you back in Psalm 40? Yes, I am as well. Okay. Uh, you'll see that the quotation from Hebrews is starting in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Look at the second phrase of that. My ears you have opened. Now, when the author of Hebrews quotes that in Hebrews 10, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That's a little bit different, isn't it? No, that's a lot different. My ears you have opened. A body you have prepared for me. So why is it that the author of Hebrews misquotes? Does he misquote Psalm 40? 
Or what's going on there with that, what appears like a miscitation of it. And some people even said, well, he just had a corrupted version of the text that he was quoting from. Well, if he had a corrupted version of the text that he was quoting from, then we have a corrupted version of a corrupted version, right? So I don't buy that for a moment. So something else is going on here. But we're going to unpack that. That's next week. We've got to sort of set the stage for all of that. And see why this is going to take weeks to do this? It's not just because I'm lazy. So let's dive in at verse uh, at Psalm 40. I want to give you a little bit of an outline here in a moment, but I want you to notice that the prescript, it's written, it says it's for the choir director and it's written by David. That's more than just an incidental, historical, uh, a novel fact. When we read of something in the Old Testament that is written by David, we have to keep in mind that David was a significant player in the Old Testament, probably one of the most significant players in the Old Testament, because God made a covenant with David, and not just any covenant or agreement. God made a special covenant with David, that David would be the one through whom the Messiah would come, that that Messiah would assume David's throne, and that that Messiah would rule with that throne over his kingdom forever and ever. Now, those are some really significant promises. So what we find in Psalms, especially when we're dealing with Psalms of David, is we see David experiencing things and writing things that we can almost put right over top of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember when I talked about the how the sacrifices were shadows of the substance or the reality? In many ways, and in many instances, David is a shadow of the reality who is Christ. So that the lives and experiences of David and his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, they, they're mirror images of each other in many ways. So when we read words from David or things that David writes, we also have to keep in mind that sometimes the Holy Spirit is using David in describing his circumstances to also be describing to us the circumstances and situations of the Messiah. So there are multiple times throughout the Psalms where David's experiences and his teaching and his Psalms are actually descriptions of what would come through his later son and his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, for instance, we have in Psalm 16. Remember that passage that says, Psalm 16, uh, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay? Peter quotes that on the day of Pentecost, and he says, this couldn't have been David speaking of himself since David is in his tomb, and his tomb is with us until this day. Therefore, David was speaking of one who would come after him. Well, David was in many sense describing himself and his own hope in the resurrection, but Peter sees that as layered over top of that an actual promise of the Messiah. Same thing in Psalm 22, when David says, all my bones are out of joint. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. And for my garments, they cast lots. Psalm 22 is a description in the Old Testament of crucifixion. What was David doing? He was describing his own circumstances and his own feelings, but the Spirit of God was so superintending what David was saying so that when the Messiah came and he experienced his death, it would be a mirror image of what David was describing. You see the multiple, what David thought he was writing, the Holy Spirit was writing through David, but the Holy Spirit was saying, in essence, wait till I fulfill this. Then you're going to see a whole new meaning and a whole new understanding to this. And it's not that those passages in David have a different meaning, it's that they have a parallel meaning, a parallel interpretation. And that's what we find here in chapter uh, Psalm chapter 40. So let me give you an outline of the psalm before we go through it, and we will go through it, the whole thing, I promise. Verses 1 to 3, we have David's personal testimony of God's goodness and his deliverance. That's the first three verses. In verses 4 and 5, we have God's goodness to all his saints. So David describes his own personal little deliverance that God had done for him, and then says this is because God is good to all of his people. And he speaks of God's goodness to all his saints. Then in verses 6 to 10, we have this dedication by David to do the will of God, and that's the passage that is quoted in Hebrews 10. And then in verses 11 through 17, there is a prayer for deliverance and victory or vindication. 
And there are some imprecatory elements in the psalm, which means imprecatory meaning that David here in the psalm is actually praying for and asking for deliverance from God's enemies by God conquering God's enemies on David's behalf. That's the last part of the psalm. So let's begin at verse 1 and look at David's personal testimony of God's goodness. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. All David's describing there is some deliverance from some historical circumstance that he found himself in, where God delivered him from that distress, his anxiety, the affliction, whatever suffering he was going through. It seems as if it has something to do with enemies that had allied themselves against David. We don't know exactly what historical circumstance this was, but David found himself facing very difficult and trying times. And he basically just says, the Lord has delivered me from this. He has taken me out of this pit, and he has set my feet on solid ground. And then in verse 3, he describes how this becomes a testimony to others. When God delivers David from something, people see what the Lord has done in David's life, and they can say, yes, God is good. I see God's goodness in the lives of others, and that encourages me to trust God for the goodness that I also will enjoy. If God can deliver David through this, God can deliver me from my circumstances. Whatever David was facing, he was delivered from. Whatever I am facing, I can be delivered from, if God should, if God should so will. But then in verses 4 to 5, David switches his focus more, generally speaking, to God's goodness to all of his people. So verse 4, How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust, and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. What would be too numerous to count? God's thoughts toward us. Now here, David is just simply describing the way that God approaches or the way that God thinks of and treats the righteous one, the one who has put his trust in the Lord and not in falsehood or lying princes or powers or courts or anybody else. We put our trust in the Lord and the Lord delivers his people. Why? Because many are the thoughts of the Lord towards the righteous. Now this is, I don't want to camp on this, even though I think this is worth the whole sermon just to unpack what this means. But I just want you to hear how comforting this is to realize. From eternity past, if you are in Jesus Christ, from eternity past, God knew your name. How far back in eternity past can you go in your mind? It's a long ways. God knew your name. He set his love and affection upon you. And for eternity past, he was thinking about his elect. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had conversations about, thoughts about, and intentions for your good and your glory. That's a long time to be having conversations and to have somebody on their mind. Is it not? That's a long time. Then God has planned all of creation and providence around securing your everlasting joy and glory. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in creating creation and in creating Adam and allowing the fall and in intentioning redemption through His people, through all of the Old Testament, through all of human history, from the moment of creation all the way up until now, the Lord has been thinking about you. Many are His thoughts toward the righteous. Many. And if you would begin to even declare what God thinks about you, it would be too numerous to even count. Now, I think you could count my thoughts. Especially as a man, I've basically got only one idea going through my head at all times. 
whatever it is, and I go from one track to the next track to the next track. That's just how I, it's easy. My, my mind is an eight-track tape. So there's eight tracks. You have eight of them all day long. I think about food. I think about sleep. I think about other things. And I think about other things. Okay, so I got eight of them going on. You can count my thoughts. Okay? You can never count God's thoughts. For all of eternity past, and listen, for all of eternity future, while He is your joy and your delight, many are His thoughts toward you. See, this is comforting to the righteous, right? This is why we can trust that God is a God of deliverances. That He can take us out of the pit and set our feet on solid ground and make us to rest in Him and make us to joy and glory in Him. Many are His thoughts toward us. Now verse 6, this is the this is the dedication to the will of God in verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now that is the passage that's quoted in Hebrews 10. And we'll return to it here in just a moment. Keep going at verse 9. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord. Or Lord, you know. So David is basically saying, I have committed myself to you. I've dedicated myself to you, O Lord. And so you are on my lips, and I am proclaiming your goodness and grace to everybody. He is dedicated to praise God for his goodness and his deliverances. Verse 10, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. David is one who proclaims God's goodness because of God's goodness to him. Many are God's thoughts toward him. So David David says, if God's thoughts toward me are innumerable, if they cannot be numbered, then I will begin to praise God for all of those thoughts that he has toward me in righteousness. And then verse 11 through 17 is a prayer for deliverance. And we're going to return here in a moment back to verse 6. But I want you to notice the prayer for deliverance and victory. Verse 11, you, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They're more numerous than the hairs of my head. My heart also has failed me. Now, verse 12, David is obviously aware of his own personal sin, which means that not everything in this psalm is about the Messiah. Verse 12 could never be said of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many are my iniquities. They're more numerous than the hairs of my head. Now, David can count his sins, and truly, our sins can be counted. They can be numbered. We could never number them, but God's thoughts toward us can never be numbered. Notice the contrast. My, my sins are numerous. They're many. But God's thoughts toward me are so numerous that they can never be counted. Verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. And let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Now notice the first part of the psalm. He says in verse 5, God's thoughts towards me are too numerous to be counted. And then at the end of the psalm, he says, let the Lord be mindful of me. Now that makes sense, the prayer, let the Lord be mindful of me, only if we are confident that the Lord's thoughts toward us are too numerous to count. David can trust in God's ability to see and understand and comprehend all that he is enduring only because he knows that the Lord has set his affection on the righteous, on the man who is blessed because he trusts in God. And for that reason, he asked for God to be mindful of him. And there is a prayer here over in these final verses for a victory, a prayer for victory over God's enemies, which ultimately, by the way, the Messiah himself will accomplish. So this vindication that is coming is not something that ever would have happened during David's days 
alone, but it is something ultimately which God will accomplish through the Messiah. God will be vindicated through the, through the judgment that Jesus Christ will bring when he comes back to establish his kingdom and fulfill the, the promises that he made to David. He will be vindicated. Now I want you to notice as we go back to verse 6, I want you to notice the placement of this prayer of dedication. And that's what verses 6 through 8 is. It is a prayer of dedication. It, it, there's a simple progression here. Verses 1 through 5, God delivers his people. Um, God delivers those who trust in Him, who are dedicated to Him, who have given themselves to Him. God is their strong tower and deliverer. That's the promise in verses 1 through 5. Verse 6 through 10, David says, I am such a person. I have come to do your will. Your law is written on my heart. It's not sacrifices which you have desired of me, but it is dedication to you and obedience to your will, and that's what I have done. Therefore, last third of the psalm, deliver me. Notice the progression. God delivers those who trust in Him and do, are obedient to Him. I am one who trusts in you and is obedient to you. Therefore, deliver me from what? Those who are disobedient to you and do not trust in you. That's the flow of the psalm. In the middle, it's here this dedication or this prayer of dedication by David to the Lord. And that's where we pick up in verse 6. Now notice, and I pointed out the different phrase, but a body you have prepared for me is how uh, Hebrews 10 translates chapter uh, Psalm 40, Verse 6, a body you have prepared for me. That's quite different than my ears you have opened. And we're going to get into why that is different and what accounts for the difference and the significance of the difference, and it is a significant difference. But the psalmist, sorry, the author of Hebrews takes the words of the psalm in verses 6 and 7 and 8, and he puts them on the lips of the Messiah as if David, even though he is writing these things, is actually writing these things as if spoken by somebody else. And you'll see the parallelism here as we work through verse 6 and following. So now in Psalm 40, verse 6, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Now stop there for a second. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. Burnt offerings you have not required. But God did require them, didn't he? Yeah. Every morning, every evening... Every Yom Kippur, personal offerings and private offerings and family offerings and feasts and festivals and sacrifices and new moons and animals beyond number and red heifers and cleansing and all of that, God had required all of that, had he not? So what then does David mean when he says in verse 6, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, but God required those things. God demanded those things. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews, and he says something that the author of, uh, that David does not, but the author of Hebrews, when he's describing this, he reminds us these things were offered according to the law. These things which David said the Lord has not desired and he has not required, they were actually offered in obedience to the demands of the law. So the law did require those things, but what does David mean when he says you have not offered or you have not desired these things, nor have you required these things? This is where the messianic element comes in here in just a moment. But I want you to understand what David is laying claim to here, what he is describing here, is the fact that God himself was not desirous of, nor did he require, simply the offering of animals themselves. It was not the sacrifice just by itself alone, without obedience to the commands of God, that God delighted in. God didn't delight in just the sacrifices. What was God after? He was off after the animal sacrifices, coupled with, brought with, a pious, righteous, obedient, contrite heart. That's what God wanted. And David here is getting to the, the point 
that the Lord was not interested in just the outward forms. And the Jews had fallen into, and they did this throughout their history, and we fall into the same trap today. The Jews had fallen into the mistake, the error, of thinking that as long as they went through the outward forms of the sacrifices, that they were okay. That they could create, they could commit iniquity, and then they would just say, but Saturday's coming, so I'll just bring another lamb to the altar and we'll cover that up. Or that they could commit wickedness and then say, but then I'll just repent afterwards. As if God was just delighted in the death of animals. And here's the point. God does not delight in the death of animals. God didn't just want to see animals butchered for no reason. That was not the point of the sacrifices. The point of the sacrifice was for the worshiper to bring the sacrifice with a contrite heart. Say, this is the cost of my sin and I grieve over it. God, give me the grace to not do this again. That's what God wanted. Contrition, repentance, righteousness, justice, a pursuit of holiness. It was not the outward forms of that. There's a passage, I think it's in the Psalms. I forgot to look it up before this morning. There's a passage where the Lord says, uh, do you think I just desire your sacrifices? The hills are full of animals that belong to me. If it's just animals I want, I got plenty of those. If God just wanted to see dead animals, he could have created a bunch of animals, killed them all. That's what he wanted. But that's not what he was interested in. It wasn't the sacrifices that God required of us. It's the sacrifices coupled with a contrite heart, uh, obedience, and humility. That's what God wanted. And so you see, and, and, and David really is identifying the very thing that is behind the sacrifices, the very things that the sacrifices were to point to, and that is the contrition and the repentance and the worship and love and obedience of the worshiper. So we read through the Old Testament on multiple occasions where the Lord reproves the Jews for bringing their sacrifices. Listen to this, Amos chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Enter Bethel and transgress. Here's what the prophet says. You go to this city and sin. Wait a second, is the prophet commanding people to sin? No. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. How are they doing that? Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened. Proclaim free will offerings. Make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel. And what was Amos saying? Every time you come and you offer up these sacrifices, the sacrifice is sin. The sacrifice ought to be the thing that you offer because you have sinned, and now your sacrifices have become sin. Why? Because they made such a loud proclamation of all their sacrifices and the holiness and what they were doing and free will offerings and tithes and grain and wine and all of this stuff. And they would bring it all to the Lord with prideful, rebellious, and disobedient hearts. And the Lord says, when you do this, you transgress. Amos 5, verse 21, I hate, I reject your festivals. Nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I'll not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Close quote. What did the Lord want? Justice and righteousness, not the sacrifices. First Samuel 15, 22. Do you remember the incident where David came and, and confronted Samuel? Samuel was supposed to go in and slaughter the Amalekites, and then he was supposed to uh, destroy everything. He wasn't supposed to keep back anything. And Samuel said, that was good instruction, but I think I know better. So he kept back the best of the flock and started offering sacrifices when David did, or sorry, when Samuel didn't arrive. And so what did the Lord say through Samuel to Saul? Does the Lord delight in sacrifices and offerings? It's not that. To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Psalm 51, verse 17. 
David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Listen to Isaiah chapter 1. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Close quote. What was the Lord saying? Not interested in all your religious doings? You disobedient and stubborn people? Give me obedience, not your sacrifices. The sacrifices were supposed to be an expression of that obedience, but they had become a replacement for that obedience. And so the Lord says, I don't desire your sacrifices. David said, it's not just sacrifices per se that you require of me, but instead he says, I have come to do your will. And this is what the Lord was after. Micah 6, 6 through 8. What shall I say? Or with what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in the thousands of rams, in ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's not the sacrifices. It's not about the sacrifices. It was never about the sacrifices. And that's what Psalm 40 is saying in verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. God wanted obedience. So David says then in verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Now here is David's prayer of dedication. I want you to see how, how verse 7 and 8 can be spoken from David's perspective. He says to the Lord, it is not the sacrifices which you want in and of themselves. What you really want is an obedient heart. Therefore, I come. And you can picture David almost coming to the temple himself and saying, I, I come to you, O Lord, in the book, scroll of the book it is written of you that I would do your will, and that is what I want to do. So your law, verse 8, is within my heart, and I delight to do your will, O my God. That is what God is after, the heart. God wanted that heart from David. And David recognizes that. So he commits himself to be obedient to God. In, in terms of this prayer being spoken from the mouth of David, there's a question, what does it mean when he says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God? What would that scroll refer to? Well, if, if we just take this from David's perspective, of how David would have been describing this, it very well may be a reference simply to, in the books of Scripture, which David had at the time, it is required of us that we be obedient. So he would be looking at the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, and be able to say, in those books, obedience is required of me. So in the scroll of your books, this is what is required, obedience. Not the sacrifices, obedience. And so that is written of me, just as it is written of all God's people. This is what God requires. God requires obedience. And so David would be saying, in that scroll it is written of me and all of God's people that we ought to do your will. So we come before you, and you come and be obedient to give ourselves to you, O Lord. 
But there is obviously a whole other layer here to David's meaning when he, does, when he is saying this, because the author of Hebrews sees this not just as David's words, but also the words that could come from the mouth of Jesus. So from the mouth of Jesus, it's easiest, easy to see the messianic overtones of the passage, is it not? When we read in verse 6, Sacrifice a meal offering you have not desired, my ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required, or verse 6, a body you have prepared for me. You can see the messianic overtones here. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Now let's imagine that verse 6 is spoken by the Messiah. Spurgeon pictures it this way when he's preaching on this passage. He, he said, it is as if these words come from the mouth of the Messiah as he is stepping up to the edge of heaven, about to enter into this world at the incarnation in the womb of the virgin. And this is what he says to the Father. It's not sacrifice that you have required of me, animal sacrifices. It's not burnt offerings that you're asking me to give. But instead, in the scroll of the book, in all of the Old Testament, it is written of me, I then will do your will. And what does he mean? What would the Messiah mean when the Messiah would say, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me? He would mean the same thing that he meant when he was with the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. And he went through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and he showed them the scriptures, all the things concerning himself. He would mean the same thing that he meant in John chapter 5 when he said to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life and they are those which testify of me. And if you believe Moses, you believe me because Moses wrote about me. That's John 5. All the Old Testament is about him. So the Messiah, recognizing the second person of the Trinity, recognizing that all of that Old Testament text was about him, he would step up to the edge of heaven and say, the Father has not required me to offer a burnt offering. He has not required me as a high priest to offer an animal sacrifice. Instead, knowing full well what it was that the Father was expecting him to do, to come into this world and to live a perfect life, and then to give his own life as a sacrifice on the cross, the Son said, that is what the Old Testament says of me, and I delight to do the will of the Father. And so he comes into this world knowing that a body has been prepared for him, for him to come and offer that service and fulfill that act of obedience. So you can see how verses 6 through 8 would really, in a, in a fuller sense, in a better sense even, refer to the Messiah and be able to be something that he would be able to utter. Because the Lord did not require that priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, to step into this creation and then offer another animal sacrifices. That's not what the Father required of him. The Father didn't ask Jesus to come and go to the temple and offer up a, a lamb or a bull or a goat. But the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had agreed together before any Adam was created, before a single angel was created was that the Son would come into the world and offer His life. He would make a sacrifice, but it wouldn't be an animal sacrifice. And the Son, in verses 6 through 8, not David, but the divine Son, says, Lord, it's written in the scroll in all the Old Testament of me, and I will go and I will do your will. And He comes and He does the will of the Father. And that obedience, really, that obedience of the Son is the model for us. That is what we are called to follow after. That is the example that we are to follow. Does God desire our acts of worship? Just the forms? Just the functions? Just the outward show? Is that what God really wants? Or is God after something entirely different? Does He want the rituals? Or He wants righteousness within? He wants righteousness within. He desires obedience to His commands, a broken and contrite heart. And without those things, all the externals are just pomp and circumstances. It's just a show. And the Lord would say, that's not what I desire. 
You see, when we come and we do the outward thing without the inner heart of obedience and commitment to the Lord, it is just as odious to him as a wicked Jew bringing an animal sacrifice and thinking that this is somehow going to pay the price for his iniquity. It's not what the Lord desires. Next week, take a look at Psalm 40 again. This time, see how the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 uses it. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.